This is the Feminem Podcast, the official podcast of Feminem, discussing all things femme, a little bit of EM, and everything in between. I'm Jenny Beck Esme, editor in chief of Feminem. Virtual Fix 20 is happening this week. We are all so excited. We've been hard at work getting this ready, and we cannot wait to spend two days with all of you. You can still join us if you head over to the website and grab your ticket. To keep getting you excited about it, here's another talk from Fix 19. This is called The Deserving Patient from Dr. Carolyn Snyder. She's Chief of Emergency Medicine at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto, Ontario. In her talk, she tells the story of a young man who died in the waiting room in Winnipeg and tries to analyze the implicit biases that might have been behind this tragedy, as well as the steps we can all take to challenge and understand our biases better. Take a listen. In September 2008, Brian Sinclair, a middle-aged indigenous man, died in the emergency department waiting room in a Winnipeg hospital. He'd been sent to the emergency department to have a UTI ruled out. He used a wheelchair and had a catheter, and the clinic physician was, was concerned and wanted the catheter changed and some lab work done. Security footage showed that he was greeted by a healthcare aide, but never registered nor triaged. Multiple family members of other patients went up to staff and asked them to check on him. A basin was given him, to him when he started to vomit. Security footage showed a nurse actually checking on him, and later she noted that she thought he had been triaged and was just waiting for a bed. And in the end, Mr. Sinclair had been in the waiting room for 34 hours prior to his death. Later deemed to have died from urosepsis. In 2011, I moved to Winnipeg into that emergency department, and during my time there, an inquest occurred into his death. I was frankly stunned, to be honest, with, uh, when I found out about some of the people who were involved in his care or non-care during the, that time. They were incredible people, empathetic, good people. Some of them were the biggest champions. Well, I worked with community Indigenous partners to develop a, a hospital-based violence intervention program. They were good people, and I had trouble putting that together. I grew up with the idea of racism being about Hitler, Rosa Parks, Viola Desmond, Canadian story for those of you out there. I grew up, however, in a white, predominantly privileged environment and really didn't get exposed to much racism. More recently, I was exposed to the term aversive racism. Racism being some, uh, a kind of racism where you explicitly deny racist ideas, but in fact have implicit bias. And, and I know I do not have to explain what implicit bias is. It's been a, a, a pervading theme of, of this conference. In medicine, we know that we undertreat pain, both racial and gender bias. We know that we undertreat cardiac, uh, cardiac conditions with women and, and uh, other races. And we know that there is pervasive implicit bias in psychiatric care. Often, if we see somebody with a mental health illness on their, on their history, we don't actually even think about their physical illnesses. During the inquest, 
the community and family advocates strongly asked for them to examine the systemic racism and implicit biases that occurred in the healthcare system. But the provincial government and the very tightly tethered Winnipeg Health Sciences uh, Health Authority won out. 63 recommendations were made and almost entirely they were about overcrowding. And while there's no doubt overcrowding needs to be addressed, this was not about overcrowding. And as I spoke and spent time with my community colleagues in the days and months after the inquest was over and experienced their disappointment, I knew I have the responsibility to try and understand in my own implicit involvement in this, for I work within this system. And so I did do the implicit assumption test, and I'm going to ask you to be gentle with me because I'm going to share with you my results, and they're not pretty. So when I first read this, I was ashamed, and I, I thought, well, what, what does this mean in terms of the scale? And, and I can promise you it's really darn bad. And so, like many people, I did a deep dive into the research. And I said, well, is it really valid? <laughs> and the studies are showing that it's pretty valid, although there are some uh, meta-analyses that, that question it, and they'll say that maybe it depends on your mood and the time of day and the environment of the, which you've done it and, and what has been the context of your life over the last days, weeks, months, and so I did it again, and I got a bad score again. And so then I thought, well, you know, I grew up in a, in a predominantly white, uh, I accepted that, and I thought, but I wonder how I'll do in places where I've had more exposure to otherhood. And so, as I mentioned, I'd done a lot of work and had many partners who were indigenous, and in fact, I had been honored by the term ally by some of my colleagues. And so I thought, well, I'll do the implicit assumption test for those with indigenous versus white. And I did pretty poorly there. And then I thought, well, okay, so this was last fall, and I thought, well, I've just accepted one of the biggest leadership positions in Canadian emergency departments in across Canada. And in this case, my husband is going to stay and solo parent our kid in another province, and I haven't done dishes or laundry in years, and I, I have the most supportive female career-oriented family you can imagine, I figure. So I'm going to do this. I, I'm going to do well at least on that one. And I didn't. Rose, you're right. The mommy guilt is huge. And so I knew I had to be better. I wanted to figure out whether these tests actually translate to my real life. So in the final days of my time in Winnipeg, I was cleaning out my locker. And in Winnipeg, or in Manitoba, you're required, whenever you write a prescription for an opiate or a controlled substance, you're required to write it in triplicate. And so I had these stacks of prescriptions for my farmer eight years. And I thought, well, I'll just look to see if there's any sort of trends there. And there was a trend. Pretty much everybody I wrote a prescription for, an opiate for, had names that sounded like mine. I know. I knew and I know I need to be better. So this morning, one of the questions was, how do we do this? How do we, once we acknowledge our own implicit biases, how do we actually work on this? I learned about the, the um, 
the Break the Prejudice Habit. It is a program and I have not taken it, but I do know that many people have and maybe some in the room have. But there are five steps and I like frameworks and so I use this now to challenge myself to understand my biases. The first one is stereotypes. Detect them and reject them. The second one is individualizing people. And so every time I go into the, to a patient's room, I try to find a connection with them that we share and that allows me often to see them more as an individual. It may be our love, our common love of bad dad jokes or it might be the weather outside or our common love of cheese sandwiches. There's always something that we can make a connection with and start to know that individual better. Their perceptions. What is their perception of me? If I can try and imagine what it must be like to be in their shoes when I'm in that room, how does that change our experience and the situation and somebody's behavior? We often attribute behaviors to the person as opposed to the situation they're in. Gosh, that has opened up my experience treating patients in the emergency department. And finally, one that I've always tried to do, but I think I'm doing even more overtly, is making sure I'm exposed to more people who are other than me or different than me. All of this is stuff I'm working on, but I am so early in my journey, and I have so far to go. I want to bring you back to, to Brian, Mr. Sinclair. I remember the day the story came out about his death. I was working, I was a junior physician, a, a colleague of mine came in at handover and he brought in the front of the paper, he said, God, this could happen to us. See, the media portrayed Brian Sinclair's death as happening to a drunk, homeless native man who had just come in to get out of the cold to a safe space in an overcrowded emergency department. But in fact, that's pretty far from the truth. Brian was born to two parents, indigenous parents in Manitoba, who had both uh, gone to residential schooling. Residential schooling is, was common in uh, the US and Australia and Canada. It's a, truly a form of cultural genocide. Both of his parents worked hard. His father was a logger and a fisherman. His mother raised nine children. He had a family that loved him. 18 months prior to his death, he got locked out of his home. It was minus 44 degrees that day Fahrenheit. That's a January in Winnipeg for you. He suffered severe hypothermia, severe frostbite, and ended up having bilateral above the knee amputations. He also had a seizure disorder and a speech language disorder. Brian had $5,000 in his bank account. After his uh, injury and, and amputation, he was housed in an assisted living center where he received three times a day home care, regular nursing visits, regular speech language pathology assistance. That's Canadian healthcare for you. And on the day of his death, it was 18 degrees. 
in the emergency department. He had been in the emergency department 31 times over the prior six years, which is a lot of times, but he did have a seizure disorder and he did he have a catheter and he had suffered from urosepsis. Only one of those times was substance even mentioned on his chart. So let's be very clear. Oh, and by the way, the numbers in the eMERGE that day were no bigger than any other number day. So let's be very clear. Brian Sinclair did not die due to overcrowding. He died because people, through their implicit bias, deem patients deserving or less deserving. So I thank you for joining me on this early part of my journey, because as I mentioned, it's not over. And I encourage you all to also start this journey if you haven't already, because we need to be part of this journey in order to ensure that the pervasive racism that continues in our hospitals across all of our nations stops existing to this degree. Because as Brian Sinclair has taught us, this kind of racism is not benign.